Hi everyone, I'm Josh. And I'm Jim. And this is The Dapper Meeple. This show is about our love of gaming, the games we play, and the gaming community around this passion. So pull up a chair, put on your Dapper Meeple hat, and join us at the table. Hey kids, remember, this is an adult podcast and may contain adult language. Also, Dapper Meeple hat, not required. We hate negative clickbait, and I just wanted to get that out there first. Other than that, on this episode, we're diving into the new 1D&D to see what we think of Wizard of the Coast's proposed changes. We're also going to talk about new projects that we've gotten to work on, why you should never read the comments, and, well, in Jeremy we trust. All of that on this episode of The Dapper Meeple. Hey, so if you've been listening, you probably caught our last special episode that we dropped where we got the chance to do another board game review for a game that is not out yet. It was currently in production slash funding over on GameFound.com, and that was Intergalactic Ace. Yeah, this is our second game review that we've gotten to do for a game that is either in the process of crowdfunding um, or somewhere in the early stages of development. I, I really enjoy this type of review I like having my hands in the kind of beginning process of a game. Not not in a way to say like, oh, we got to play this game and you didn't or something along those lines. But it's more just being able to see kind of the the beginnings of a game. You know, we talked about that with Ed, actually, and his brother when they were on here talking about Cult of the Deep. Right. Um, we were kind of getting some more insights of how, you know, the game design process goes, how what that looks like from start to finish and even into the crowdfunding process, the challenges and things that all come along with that. I like being a part of that. Uh, obviously we are not game designers ourselves. Nope. nope. Not, not even in the least, but it's neat for us to be able to see that process kind of firsthand and also even be able to, you know, maybe make some suggestions or um, help a designer along the way in that process. Yeah, the guy's name is uh, Jack Kastorf out in California. Him and his wife own a business where they actually do, like, wood cutting. And all of this game, the parts on it, one of the things that we were real, like, big on was the construction of the game. The player boards, which are kind of like your ship, and all of the tokens and pieces that go along with the game are all cut out of wood. And they're done really well. It looks really good. And we had a prototype copy. Um, but that's what they do. So this is kind of his first foray into making a game. And when we talked to him about it, I guess the whole idea behind it was he wanted a game that his in-laws and family could play, and they are not gamers. Um, and it, when he designed the game, he designed it with a lot of randomness in it. So that way, you know, if you're a if you're an experienced board gamer, there are certain mechanics that you learn along the way, right? Yeah. There's a certain way of thinking and tactics that you just kind of pick up just from playing several other games. Well, this game was way more random, so it really didn't matter, and it could be an anybody wins kind of thing. Yeah, and he was very upfront about the kind of design philosophy behind it, the people he was planning on playing with, that sort of thing. One of the things for us that we kind of took it, and we talk about in our review quite often, is that we we felt like there were a lot of moments that just felt bad because of the randomness. Right. There's nothing you could do about it. You 
are pushing to like become an ace so you're trying to get five kills in this game and you just there are certain points where you're, it's completely up to luck it is completely random yeah and we obviously have nothing against dice rolling because i mean we love D and tabletop games where it's oftentimes the dice decide your fate but when it comes to a game like this specifically where it's more of a competitive type nature sometimes it's it, it it really does. It just feels bad when there's absolutely nothing you can do. So we actually tweaked it a little bit. We played with some suggestions that we thought might feel better, um, giving a little more player agency and things like that. And we shot that back to him, um, which he received mostly positive. I, mm-hmm. I think um, kind of a wow. I never really thought about that kind of thing or looked at it from that perspective, which I think is a huge part of getting people to play test your games. Right. Uh, 100% getting people to look at things from another perspective. Um, and like I said at the beginning, by no means are we, you know, the gurus of game design or anything like that. But I think we're just two guys who have played quite a few games who kind of have a certain expectation of a way a game should feel. Right. I mean, there are lots of different kinds of games. And I mean, we even we even love Dice Throne, which is, again, completely dice rolling randomness across the board. But it still gives you that opportunity for those player agency moments. Right. That Yahtzee roll type mechanic where I've got a couple of tries to get this to work. Yeah. You know, and then the cards change and things like that. Yeah. And even in his original book, uh, the last page of the instruction booklet tells you like, hey, don't read this until you've played, you know, a time or two. Yeah. And that's because they were kind of like some more advanced rules. Um, Most of them that I liked, most of them is some of the stuff we used when we were talking about tweaking things. Because it was really like, like we say in the review, the bones of the game are good. Yeah, like yeah. everything, it just you can make an incredible game out of this. It was just some play test stuff that we were like, hey, this kind of feels better if we do it this way. Um, I actually passed that game on to a friend of mine, and I'm waiting to hear back from him to see what he thinks. The game itself just funded on GameFound, like I think yesterday. Yep, twenty seven days in, and it funded. So we're gonna get the game. Um, we backed it. I, I'm excited to see what the finished product looks like. Um, it's really, you know, I mean, it packs up small. There's a lot in that box, you know, and it's something you could break out on a plane or a train or whatever. Um, so best of luck to Jack. And like, I'm really excited to see what the final product looks like. Yeah, there, there are a lot of positives that we had about the game. <clears throat> you can go check out our review, not only in the small mini episode we did, which was published right before this one. But you can also go take a look at BoardGameGeek.com at the Intergalactic Ace page. We actually did a write-up on there of our thoughts and review on it there. Mm -hmm. So definitely go check it out. Um, If you are interested, back it. Like we said, it's a great game right out of the box as it is now with absolutely zero changes. It's a great light game, but I think it really has potential to be something even better. Right. And I guess that kind of brings us back to a discussion that we had had before about Somebody asking me if we would ever do a negative review on a game. And for those of you that listen, we do the games we play segment, which is where we'll take a game and break it down for you. Give you our thoughts, what we liked about it, what we didn't like about it. What I don't want to do is ever do a review where I'm like, this game sucks and just throw it away. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I want to have some constructive feedback if I don't like it or be able to explain why I don't like certain parts of it or whatever. So, and there's a lot of games out there that we play that we liked, and we've only got, we're, this is episode 24, so we're getting to it, you know, maybe one day, but something like this where, you know, a designer has asked us to, hey, can you play my game and do a review on it? And 
you know, that'll help the the funding, the crowdfunding. It'll help get the word out there to people. Something like that is a little bit different. Um, but I still, in, by no means, ever want to just, you know, shit on a game and be like, you know, this sucks, and that's the end of the discussion. Yeah, I feel like we still want to be honest about how we feel about a game. And I feel like for us, even when we were playing that game, we struggled with it a lot because we felt that there was something missing. Right. Like something that, that needed to be tweaked or changed just a little bit. But it took us, what, 12, 20 plays to figure out exactly <laughs> how we would do that or what we would do with it. And I think that's kind of the approach that we take on things is that we push for a more positive outlook when it comes to things, especially within this hobby. Right. Um, we've talked, I mean, shoot, our whole shtick is about, you know, being positive, bringing people into the like hobby, making sure there's room for everybody. And along with that goes the whole accepting people as they are with being positive about, you know, the different aspects of culture and people and things like that. So I think we kind of pull from that automatically. But at the same time, I think it's a whole lot easier to have discussions that lead places like better places when you are able to not only look at well what you don't like about something, but also, well, let's look at it constructively and what can we do to maybe make that better or tweak it slightly so that it's more beneficial. Right, right. And this whole discussion is part of you know my pet peeve uh, for this week, too, where I got an article that came across my Facebook page from CBR.com, and it was the 10 most cringeworthy monsters in D&D. And it just annoyed me because <laughs> it is just they're so invalid. Like it really, it, there are a lot of these pieces that I see too. Like the ten worst spells in D and D, and the ten board games that you should never play. You're like, why write that article? Like, how miserable are you today? <laughs> what really pissed me off is we went back and looked at it, right? And I pulled up the other eighty-two articles that this the writer had done, and they were all great. They were positive articles. They were like, hey. These are 10 great builds to use as a cleric. Or, you know, if you like this cartoon, these are 10 board games that you should try. Or the 10 best published, you know, uh, canned adventures that are not Wizards of the Coast. There's a lot of positive in there. Then one day she just woke up and she was like, you know what? Fuck these monsters. For no reason. <laughs> just no reason. Um, but there's a lot of that out there. And I, 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 I don't know. I don't want to be part of that. And yes, I know the algorithm and I clicked on it. And so I'm going to pay for it later. And I'm going to keep getting those. But they just are. They're just I, there's that. That's how a fandom becomes toxic. And I feel like D and D may be kind of on the verge of some of that. I I mean, this kind of clickbaity type society has really been. It, it's encompassed a lot of what we do. Yeah. I mean, you can tell even even our news channels now. If you go to their websites, a lot of their news story and i put that in quotation marks for those of you who are not in the room with us their news stories use these type of attention grabbing articles and things like that to try and pull people in just for the views and i get it that's what they get paid on is the kind of views the amount of views that they get but at the same time i feel like it's unfair to the source material i mean it's it's clickbaity that's that's the only way to describe it it is it is and i <sighs> It annoys me. It really does. I think for this hobby, I don't think the board gaming side of it gets it as bad. And I think what is, I think what's making it more prevalent with the D and D and the tabletop side of it is just because it's gotten to be more popular 
with the masses now. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, you still, still, the other day I saw videos on YouTube that it was the same thing. The titles were like, these these are five board games that lie or something like that. And I'm like, what what does that even mean? Like, I don't have time to watch this video, but uh, it's stuff like that um, I, I think is, is crazy. But I think the explosion of the D&D hobby in the past 10 years with 5th edition, I think has brought a lot of people into the hobby and into this discourse that, I mean, have obviously differing opinions, but feel very passionate about whatever their opinion is. Yeah. So I think a lot of times in those cases, you run into these sorts of things where they may not be right, but they're very passionate about it, whatever it is. I mean, take a look at the Star Wars fandom just for reference. Uh I mean, when the, the most recent trilogy of movies started coming out, I mean, it was like it the the reviews ranged from this is the best thing they've ever put out to they just killed star wars yeah you know like uh and i i think that's uh, part of that i feel like is internet culture um where oh yeah 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 the exaggeration is kind of the thing don't Um, read the comments kids just just don't read the comments (laughs) yeah and I, I think we're finding that now with D&D, especially with the new stuff coming out about um, D&D 1. Right. Which is, for those of you who have not been initiated, is the next edition, so to speak, of D&D coming out, planning to launch around 2024. It's not an edition now, it's an experience. Yeah, okay, We're changing it. <laughs> if, that's, if that's the E word you want to use today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and we're going to talk about that on the show today. Uh, we're going to kind of break down what we've seen so far. We're going to talk about the 20 pages of Unearthed Arcana that they've released for playtest and material, which kind of all centers around character creation, because we all know that's a great subject to get into with this group. Um, I, I would like to quote Jeremy Crawford by saying, we need to start at the origin. Yeah. We're going to talk about that you know, on the rest of the episode and kind of show you what we found and what we think and maybe some stuff to look out for. Um, and if you are a tabletop role player, play test it. Don't just look at it and tell us, you know, it sucks. Why? Because I don't like it. No, play test it and see what you get out of it. I hate right? change. I hate change. That's why. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool. Like, it happens. It, it does happen in every edition. Like, the next edition comes out and there's always those people that are like, what? We already had the greatest edition, and then they'll try it a little bit, and they'll be like, "All right, this is a lot better," you know. And they just—they're real quiet because they don't end up eating their shoe and stuff. Yeah, and but I love that they're doing this. So they did this with fifth edition too, which was before I actually got into D anD. d But I love the idea that I went they... back into the histories and read the tomes. <laughs> don't quote the magic to me, woman. I was there when it was written. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Chronicles and Arnia quotes for anybody who doesn't know. Um, but I like that they're doing this. I like that they're putting the material in the players' hands. Yeah. Like, letting people take this. And Unearthed Arcana has always done this mm-hmm. um, and has put out really good stuff for it. I really think there's there's a lot of stuff that was questionable in the Unearthed Arcana. That's why, kids, you should never just allow Unearthed Arcana in your games without looking at it. Just so you know. Right. Or else you'll end up with, like, psionics or something that haven't been tested and just do weird things. But... I like that they're continuing this trend because it's very important for like the players to be able to get a chance to put their hands on this. 
I don't want to go too deep in that because we're going to probably dive all into that coming up. Right. Right. But so <laughs> moral of the story, kids, stay positive about the things that you're writing about. Don't right? read the comments. Yeah. There are enough negative things out there, enough negative articles that we do not need to contribute anymore to that. Try to find the positives in whatever you're talking about and you'll make the world a better place for it. All right, so let's just jump into it with both feet. Earlier this week, Wizards of the Coast and I guess Hasbro, their parent company, did a live Twitch stream where they were talking about the next version of D&D that they're coming out with. Um, I guess, first off, let's start with saying that they they repeatedly said that this is not the next edition, but D&D is going to change fundamentally moving forward. And then they kind of started laying out all the steps for that. So there's a lot to talk about. And this is our opinions. Uh, we're not getting paid or anything for this still. And uh, this is just kind of what we've uh, kind of gleaned out of it so far. But if you're listening, Jeremy Crawford, and you like it, we could be paid. Right? I know you guys got your own podcast, but... <laughs> we could be a sub-podcast. <laughs> and we're cheap. Yeah, real cheap. <laughs> like, free books cheap. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, so checking out this, uh, they have currently dubbed it... The other way one D and D. So, what is one D and D? Fifth edition was a massive change for Wizards of the Coast and the gaming system in general. Uh, we talked about it before on this podcast, just how popular it has become. Mm-hmm. And I have ran games and had people come sit at my tables that you would not normally think of when you pictured your typical D and D player. Yeah, I feel like fifth edition really opened the door not only for just popularity reasons, but also for just accessibility. Yes. And I feel like we see those changes reflected in now the diversity that's coming to the game. Yes, definitely. Definitely. If you look at any of the live play events, like the D&D Live that they do every year, if you look at any of the live play streams of which there are hundreds, if not thousands now, Um, even if you're just looking at like you know your top ten list of who's out there streaming live play D and D games, it is not people that are like hiding in their parents' basements or whatever the stereotype is. There are successful people, people that are engaged and you know living in their life, and they come and they sit around a table and they roll some dice and play a game. They enjoy it. Like yeah. again. Critical Role was probably one of the biggest factors for the expansion of just the audience. Yeah, I I would say that between them being probably the grandfather of the live streams, like, but just live streaming in general, people being able to see what a game of D&D looks like without having to jump into the stigma of going to someone's house or meeting in the back of a CD game store or (laughs) whatever like they expected to, as they saw as like the price of entry into D and D 
now that bar is completely lowered, if not eliminated. I think so. Yeah, because now you pull it up on YouTube and you just type in Dungeons and Dragons live stream, and then you you have options across the board of being able to see people playing this game and a lot of really good people playing this game right like fantastic storytellers that without this you know live stream and the popularity of D, we would have never got to experience oh absolutely and i think fifth edition was a fantastic vehicle for that drive yep. right like Third edition was fine. 3.5 and Pathfinder is fine. But those are also set for people that like math. Like, let's not play around. We have talked about it on here. I I played 3.5. I've seen some Pathfinder, and I could I could see where it's enjoyable. But I don't want to do all the math. Yeah. Um, it is a lot more... There's a lot more, I think, in the mechanic side going on over there, just from my impression. Um, where 5th edition, I think, is lighter, I guess is a good way to put it. I, I would I call it less rules heavy or maybe maybe not even necessarily that but it's less like player requirement heavy yeah 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 like it it doesn't put as much strain and stress on the player i mean we just we're almost wrapping up our first learn to play campaign our little five session run it's been fantastic but i mean i remember session zero's character creation was tough yeah like because for us who have created you know countless characters <laughs> like it's too not, many yeah it's not as bad we we understand how the mechanics work we understand we understand what those numbers do but sitting there with somebody who was looking at the sheet for the first time and it's blank yeah <laughs> like, that's that's where you really go all right just let's let's focus on this side over here first and we'll work through this you know one section at a time and it takes time and they eventually kind of come around on it but at the same time like it's intimidating for new players right um and i can see where uh something like pathfinder with even more character creation options even more like skill tree splits and things like well, their core rule book is like 600 pages. Yeah. It's just like, and I've got a couple sitting over here at Coyote and Crow, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, uh, the Dune uh, TTRPG. They're all like a 600 page source book. And there's a lot, there's a lot to that. Yeah. I think D&D breaks it down and makes it more manageable for the newer player. Yeah. I, I think that fifth edition has done a very good job of that. So one of the things they talked about in the um, kind of introduction video or whatever you want to call it is that they want to take a lot of the core concepts of 5th edition and just build onto them and kind of integrate some of the changes that have happened over the almost 10 years that 5th edition has been out. Because it came out in 2014, if I remember correctly. So, I mean, we're coming up. This is eight years now. So a lot has changed from the initial PHB to, if you look at like Tasha's that just came out recently. Uh, there's a lot of options and stuff now and a lot of tweaking that can be done in character creation. So I think it's a really cool place to start with this first UA that they're putting out and the initial playtest material uh, is starting there at character creation. Right, right. So just so you have a timeline, um, the plan is for the next 18 months or so, they're going to be releasing Unearth Arcana for playtests and you'll be able to give your feedback. The new books which they're talking about redoing the core set so that's your player's handbook your dungeon master's guide and your monster manual will be released in 2024 right so a year and a half 
to kind of finish whatever planning has been going on for a while, which obviously there's been some. Um, for those that don't know, D&D Beyond, which was an incredibly popular um, digital kind of format for building characters and things like that, just got bought, what was it, two or three months ago by Wizards yeah, of the Coast. it wasn't very long. Yeah, they are. They didn't even own it, um, and now they do. So that's going to be part of this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so all of this is building to uh, 2024 where they're going to release whatever one D&D becomes because that is the code name now for it. And they're already saying that it should already be backwards compatible with all the stuff you already own in 5th edition. There just might be some tweaks in there that you'll have to make. And one of the things I talked about is wanting to create kind of a seamless experience for the players. Because right now, they said, you know, players who are playing this may probably have multiple apps they're using to play. Some of them have D&D Beyond as kind of an initial source book or just a place to hold their digital character sheet. But they'll have like spell tracker apps. They'll have other character creation or character sheet apps. They want to be able to make D&D Beyond be like a one-stop shop for your game. Right. Which I think is interesting. Um, I I kind of worry that anytime you make a monopoly of something, like you, (laughs) you end up in a bad situation. But at the same time, it would be nice to be able to have everything in one place. Right. Now, both of us, as we mentioned before, we are avid lovers of physical book copies. Yep. So we every book that we have from Dungeons Dragons, we have as a physical copy in the very least. We may also have a digital copy, but we definitely have a physical copy of it. So one of the things, the questions that we have as we were kind of talking through this is they haven't said officially the direction they're going. Right. There's been kind of mentions or hints around integrating physical and digital versions. Right. But nothing really to expound upon what that looks like has come out yet. And honestly, I don't expect to see anything probably till at least next year sometime. Yeah, Because I least. feel like that's that's a pretty big bridge to try and cross. What I would like to see is I would like to see the ability to buy a physical version and then be able to redeem a digital version as well. Even if it's extra. Even like it's like 10 bucks extra, 12 bucks extra, something like that. Yeah. But give me a code where I can go online and now put this into my D&D Beyond so I need, when I got my phone or my tablet or wherever I am, I can pull up my library. Yeah. So. 100%. Because, I, yeah, I'm more than happy to pay whatever the extra is if it's not another full price. Yes. Yes, I'll get to that in a second. Um, just from their website, it says, 1D&D is the code name for the future of D&D, and it includes D&D rules. We're updating and expanding the rules of the game, and we're looking at your feedback to help shape them. Cool. I like that. I think that's what they did with 5th edition. They got some feedback before they started building it, and I like that the players are getting to have a say in this. Yeah. Second is D&D Beyond, which we just talked about. Uh, that digital tool set joined the Wizards of the Coast family in 2022, and we want to make it even better, which that's cool because D&D Beyond is a fantastic tool. Yeah. And now it's got the money of Hasbro behind it. Yeah. So um, I want great things. Um, and then digital D&D play experience announced during the Wizard Presents, which was the live stream. D&D Digital is an immersive tabletop space that is in its early development. So we're looking for you know another at least year before we see that probably. Well, they have some kind of teasers on it and stuff. We do know that it uses the Unreal Engine yep. for what it's doing. 
Um, they talk a little bit about it in the um, announcement trailer, um, how it kind of what it looks like. It's basically to give you a digital dudes on a map type thing. Right. Um, which if any of you have watched Dimension 20, they use a program called Tailspire, which does a very similar thing. It allows you to create miniatures, um, create interactive maps and things like that. So it's some. I'm expecting it to be similar to that. Sure. Now, the functionality of mixing that into and integrating that with D&D Beyond, I think the potential there is fantastic because you're talking if you can like drag and drop stuff. I mean, imagine having a monster manual with pre-modeled monsters that you just go in and you click and you drag them and now they're on your map. That's one thing that I, I didn't catch the guy's name when I was watching it the other day, but he says, you know, we want to build this experience for even the for the lazy dm i saw him yes yeah he was like because in reality we're all lazy dms um but that that kind of points towards some mindset they want to make it accessible which i think is something that's kind of been the fifth edition flag would say is making an edition accessible and i think they're kind of carrying that going into this new experience or again whatever they're want to wanting to name it right i mean there have been some people out there with the sky is falling mentality. Of course. Um, there was one that we were talking about just kind of in reference to the physical and digital copy. I heard somebody on a video talking about, well, Wizards is going to try to cut the, you know, your friendly local game store out of the equation by only offering it. You know, you have to buy through Wizards to get that. And that doesn't make sense to me for a lot of reasons. Um one of the reasons I, I think it just doesn't match their their current like corporate philosophy is because look at the way they're doing special edition covers. Yes. So those are only available through your local game store or once eventually Amazon buys them from a local game store and then resells them to you for an exorbitant fee. Um, but mainly they're supposed to be through your local game stores, not mass market produced companies. That's right. So it's only stores that are involved in the Wizards Play Network, if I'm not mistaken, um, are able to access those copies to be able to order them for you know the people who shop at their stores. Yeah. Which I think is awesome. And they usually are freaking gorgeous. Yeah, I think most of the covers that have come out that had an alternate cover, or most of the books that have come out that have an alternate cover, is that's the ones that I've bought. Yeah, I, I think they're very, there might have been one or two that I like the original art better, but for the most part, like they're fantastic. Yeah. Like they do a really, really, really good job with it because at the end of the day, and we've talked about this before, no matter how much you enjoy playing online, D&D around a table, like there's nothing that you can touch it. Just hits differently. Yeah, it, it really does. And I know this <laughs> this hobby oftentimes attracts people who are more, to the antisocial side of, of the spectrum. But if you can get over that and can like figure out how to maneuver that and manage that on your own, um, this game played sitting face to face with other people and being able to interact not only off of what they're saying, but their body language and their expressions, like those kind of things make this game fantastic yeah. and really would include a lot of the draw to it. So, I don't think it makes sense for Wizards to want to cut out their local game stores. If anything, I could see them wanting to like push it more that way 
in giving the game stores like things that the bigger mass market retailers don't have. Right. Like alternate covers, like special editions or special codes for D and D beyond for certain things. Like if just kind of thinking about their, their business model as they've operated so far, I think it does nothing but benefit them to really include local game stores in like their marketing and the way that they do it. Yeah. And I, and I think the local game stores have been a huge part of opening this game up with the play network where you can go and play D and D league night where you show up and you build a character and you will play through an adventure and the game stores have their own DMS that are running things on top of that. We talked a little bit in our last one about the gig economy DMS are being paid to run games and they're doing it online, but they're also doing it in person. We have a group around here, and I think it's the Rogue DM. They're running games at kind of our local gaming cafe that we have here in Virginia Beach. Roll With It Cafe is really kind of super cool. They do a lot of like trivia nights, and they even do like a board game mix and mingle night for the singles. Or I don't know what the rules are on that one, so don't quote me. You um, mean I had to be single? Yeah. <laughs> but they're running a and d like it's like 120 bucks for like six sessions or something right and that's happening in person i know that we just like you said we're finishing up our first like learn to play game where we brought a bunch of people in who have not played fifth edition or not really gotten a good shot at fifth edition and we ran a game for them that was like six sessions nothing overly complicated a lot of fun a lot of leveling overpowering the characters you know picking out the funnest parts of D to really focus on and one of the th- one of the things that I was told, some of the feedback that we got was, you know, it was somebody else that I had actually played with online. And she was like, I've played with you online and the NPCs and stuff are great, but it is so different seeing an NPC come to life in person mm-hmm. because now they're, like you said, the body language and what changes about them and the facial expressions is all different now because yeah. you're sitting across the table from them. So I'm really hoping that you're right. And I think that the people that were concerned with it, like I said, had kind of a chicken little mentality and the sky is falling because this is what you're going to get for the next year and a half. I can guarantee (laughs) every time a new Unearthed Arcana comes out, there's going to be a ton of people that are like, oh no, this is going to ruin D&D because they say it every time. Right, right. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm feeling pretty positive about this. Like, in Jeremy, we trust. Um, (laughs) Now I want to make up fake dollar bills that say that. (laughs) We will. We're going to give it to him in packs. <laughs> It'll be the Dapper Beeple with Jeremy's face on it. It's going to be gold, baby. <laughs> or we're going to get a cease and desist letter. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, it's 50-50 at this point. But, right? I'll know. just call my new motherfucking best friend, Keith Baker, and see what he thinks about it. <laughs> well, that's up for him, too. <laughs> I'm pretty positive about this. Like, it really... A lot of the things that people have been saying, though, too, are, you know, you have to remember that D&D is owned by Wizards. Wizards is owned by Hasbro. Hasbro is a company that makes money. Yep. Got it. So I think it's going to be on us as the players to kind of keep an eye out for, you know, corporate jackassery that may be going on. Sure. And if it comes out, that needs to be something we all go to our Twitter and our Instagram and be like, hey, we see this coming and we don't want this to be part of the game. Yeah. Like, it feels like they are going to move more to a subscription model. Which makes a lot of sense, because right now D&D Beyond um, is a subscription. It's either like 3 bucks a month or 6 bucks a month, depending on if you want to share your content that you buy or not. Which, I'm all about paying 6 bucks a month, and I'll share content with people that are playing with me. Yeah. Stuff like that. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned, which is really my... Oh, it really burns me up. 
we've spent a lot of money buying books. Mm-hmm. We have shelves of books because we like having a physical copy. There's just something about it. I love being able to like spin around in my DM chair and pull a book off the shelf and be like, oh, we're going to use this monster. Or here's the answer to that question. If I decide to go into D&D Beyond because I may be a little late to that game, am I going to have to buy all of my books again to have access to the content? Yeah. Which, I mean, these are a lot of questions that still need to be answered, and there's tons more on top of that. Right. But we still have the 18 months to really get where we're going. Right. I'm not jumping to conclusions yet, but all I'm saying is D&D Beyond used to not be owned by Wizards. But now it is owned by Wizards, and I gave Wizards my money once, and I'm okay with giving them a little bit more money if they let me have access to it digitally. But if you're gonna charge me another fifty bucks for every book, yeah, like it's a hard sell. That's a sure. tax return, right? Yeah. <laughs> we do have a lot of books, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think again, it's it's the question of kind of how to be fair because. You at the same time, I'm sure there are players out there who have full digital libraries, like they've bought, they spent fifty dollars for every single book that have come out, and they have them in their D and D Beyond. So, you need to be careful about you know offering discounted rates of those books, you know, because yeah. we don't want. I, I could see as a company, you would not want to like piss off the other half of your base type thing. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I, I understand that that's a tricky and fine line to walk. Um, I just hope that they can come out with a solution that would be acceptable to, you know, both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm good with that. Yeah. So like I said, we're giving you 18 months in Jeremy. We trust. Like I mentioned in our segment before this, I, I really like the fact that they are putting the playtesting material in people's hands in the actual player's hands. And that is where it is our job, our duty as players to take this material and actually give it a shot. Yeah. Don't just look at it and say, well, on the surface, that looks like garbage. Um, We talked about that in our game review section. This is not this is something you need to actually put into play because on the surface, it may feel like. I don't like that change or that seems really overpowered or. I don't know if that will even work. Give it a shot. Yeah. Like actually put it in players' hands, play with it, run it as a DM, see how things actually work. And then be able to go back and say, okay, well, this isn't so bad. Because at at some point, Wizards is a large company. They have a lot of people who have been doing this for a long time. Right. And as we mentioned before, that we are not game designers. I, I think we need to be fair and also like give the material that they've put out a chance. Yeah. Like actually play with it, actually see what it feels like in the game. Yeah. Um, and speaking of which, let's dive into some of the unearthed arcana that we got our hands on. Like Jeremy said, it is starting at the beginning with character origins. Right. So they're changing it up a little bit on how you, build your character which i think they kind of hinted at this was the direction that they would be going with tasha's yeah i think we've seen it in a couple of the newer books how character origins have kind of begun to be i guess played with or fiddled with a little bit in how things are not as concrete as they are in 
the player's handbook. Right. The original version of 5th edition. Right. Um, I do. So I let's start about let's talk changes first and then we'll talk about how we feel about the changes. Um, so kind of the way they're one of the big changes that stuck out to me first is that your skills like your your starting um, attribute bonuses are no longer tied to race. They're tied to background. Which I think is 100% more accurate because we've had this conversation about what if you are not the, you know, the dwarf who has the two constitution and one strength, or what are what if you are the gnome who needs to have the two constitution and one strength? You know, we see so much diversity among like just people that it makes sense that that same diversity would exist in other races, right? Right, logically, and I know the, one of the big arguments I saw that pissed me off the other day when I was reading on the subreddits. Again, don't read the comments; they're terrible. But there was a rant going on about how well those bonuses are innate to them; they get them just because they are. But it doesn't make sense, right? Like, right, and and especially like you have you have six stats, and. Three are can be considered physical, and three can be considered mental. We've argued this with racists in our actual world for a long, long time. Like there is no inherent inferiority or superiority that comes from, you know, your race. Now, it's just not there. Like, for example, um, if you look at the way dwarfs are now, um, so as a dwarf now, you still get dark vision. You still get Dwarven Resilience, which is the resistance to poison. Right. Um, you still get Dwarven Toughness, which is a new thing, um, which is a slight hit point increase. Yep. Um, and you get something that's called Forge Wise, which is a tool proficiency. Um, and you get Stone Cunning, which now is not like you can identify what type of stone that is. Yeah. <laughs> um, it actually <laughs> used is... to always be such a worthless trait. Yeah, it abs- absolutely. Um, now it is actually you get the ability to use a tremor sense if you are standing on stone, if you're touching stone or something like that, which I think is fantastic. So we're taking it away from the actual like skills, like the six skills that define pretty much everything else. And we're giving them something that is like tangible to their race. Right. Like, cause if you imagine a dwarf, if you grew up as a dwarf, you lived your whole life underground, like, or at least in some kind of some hybrid of subterranean life. I feel like you would have this sense of like, not the rock speak to you, but you would feel a difference. Right. Like you see it in every fantasy movie where there's dwarves and they're underground. There's at, at some point, in every one of those movies, there's a dwarf that'll go lean against a rock or touch it and be like, hmm, something's coming. Like, there's a vibration. Yeah. Because that's what rocks do. Like, yeah. They are very good conductors of vibration. Yeah. Um, and stuff like that. And you still have, like, the, the resistance to poison damage. Again, same thing. You're used to not breathing good air. It happens underground. Coal miners, like, you know, it makes sense. Like, so I like how they're, they've done it this way. Instead of saying, oh, well, that translates into a dwarf having a better constitution than maybe another type of character. Exactly. I, I like it this way much better. 
because it it really it, it paints the picture of the race more completely than just a number. Right. Yeah. yeah. And those numbers, like we said, those stats represent your character, you know, in the different traits. And there's nothing about being a dwarf that inherently affects those. Right. I, I think uh, so. One of the ways they were kind of describing it when I was listening to um, there's like an hour long video that came out about yep. this UA that is uh, Todd Kenrick and Jeremy talking back and forth about it. And one of the things that Jeremy talks about it is how like just because you are a race doesn't really mean you should have those. It's more about what you did leading up to becoming an adventure. Right. And and I think that is fantastic. I I that's how I picture characters. Yes. Like that's much more in line with the way that I I would when it comes to character design picture them. And in fact, if you look at some of the other races the same thing um in fact we were talking about humans because humans have a new feature that is called resourceful where you gain inspiration whenever you finish a long rest and at first i was like man that's crazy that's a free advantage roll every time a human character finishes long rest um but one way that it, it begins to go and describe it it describes how humans are probably one of the more versatile races like you find them in multitudes of different areas of the world like in all sorts of different climates and cultures and all sorts of things like that and they're also one of the shorter lived races right normal lifespans being under 100 years and but yet they're still able to do these fantastic things with the short lifespans that they have and to like i i don't know as a as personally if i were trying to design a way to make that like some tangible mechanical way of making that experience of trying to show how like a human even though they they don't live as long as elves or dwarves or anything like that are still capable of you know the the art and the creation right. and the culture that these other races have i don't know how else i I would have done it. Yeah. Like, I think it's a fantastic little nod to that that says, hey, humans have this. It's something about them. Right. Even in the original, they talked about that with humans, like being a shorter lived race. But they all aspire to this greatness where a lot of some of the older races are. are, They just it happens for them. If you do anything for 800 years, you're going to get good at it. Yeah. Humans don't have that kind of time to spend. So they do aspire to a level of greatness that is considered beyond them by some races, but they achieve it one way or another. And I think, yeah, like you said, that is a great way to show that they wake up inspired. Yeah. And like, because one of the things we talked about is that kind of looking through the player's handbook or the original one from fifth edition, there were some things in there on the different races that just, they didn't do anything. Yeah. You know, they were there for... For flavor, but it just never got used. Yeah, 100%. And I feel like these kind of changes are just as much flavorful as they are mechanical. And that's kind of the balance that I would I, I would love to see. That's, yeah. that's what I want. I There's plenty of fluff that can be added into the game for flavor-wise. Like, if it's going to be in a rule book, like, let me have a reason for it being in there. Right. So, let's talk about... Uh, because it kind of breaks it down. So your race 
trait. What does your race get you now? It gets you a creature type, right? Yeah. So every character in D&D, player or NPCs or monsters, has a creature type. Humanoid, ooze, monstrosity, beast, right? And those come into play later on with some spells. Certain spells only affect certain types of creatures. Like, yep. you can't cast cure wounds on a construct. Yep. Right? So that is something that you get out of your race. You get size. The character size determines the amount of space that it occupies. One thing that they did with humans now is you, at character creation, choose whether you're going to be medium size, which was typical, or if you're going to be small. Which, okay, I like, I love the idea. Yeah. And that that actually goes across. We noticed a couple other races too. Yeah, um, you have the option to be medium or small. Um, some races are only medium, like dragon, dragonborn, dragonborn, and dwarfs are actually also only size medium. Yeah, which I find cool. Um, I would expect them to have the option, but hey, whatever. Um, but the fact that you can have a small tiefling now, I think, cracks me up, and yeah. I don't really know why, but I think it's hilarious. I'm just waiting for a, a, a band of under four foot tall tieflings yeah um uh, your lifespan will come from your race and any special traits right so the abilities like we talked about um but not your stats your background now will determine your ability score bonus which that makes way more sense Mm -hmm. if i've spent my entire life up to my foray into adventuring being say a laborer which is one of the backgrounds it gives a plus two con plus one strength that makes sense i've been you know, doing hard work for, you know, however long. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was a, a scholar or somebody that, like an adept, and I've been spending my life locked away in a library, it makes sense that I get the plus one to intelligence, plus two to wisdom, yeah. right? Because I've read a lot. I haven't experienced a lot, but I understand how the world works through education and books. Yeah. Right? So I like that trait. I like making that change. Up until the point that you started your adventuring, up until the point that you start your story, what were you doing? And because of that, that's where your ability bonus is going to come from. Now, they do mention here you can also just use Tasha's rules and put it where you want. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah, I, I think it still keeps it open as well. So it talks about, you know, using a preset background or doing kind of the way that you want. But it does give you a couple things now. So you get the ability scores, the plus two or plus one, or you can do a plus one and three abilities, which I think is kind of cool, too. Um, As somebody who loves to push the boundaries of character creation, I'm not saying I'm a min-maxer, but I'm just saying there are options. Um, I think that's cool. It gives you a more even character. Yes. also, so everything else are pretty standard. You get the two skill proficiencies, you get a tool proficiency, you get a language. So you get common, um, and then you can choose a language from the standard languages or rare languages table, uh, which pop up later on. Um, and then your character knows that language. So you also get a language from your race. Yes. Um, and then you have common. Right. So you have three in all. One yep. from your race, one from your background, and one you get to choose. Yep. Uh, so the one change they made now, your backgrounds give you a feat. Yes. So if you are hearing that and go, Oh God, here we go. They've leveled the feats now. So there are, there are first level feats and that's what you get in your background. So some of the ones just kind of a quick, like drop down of what we get. Uh, magic initiate now is a first level feat. There's a feat called crafter, uh, which is actually a new one. It's, it's pretty cool. 
There is a new uh, musician feat, which we'll talk about these more here in a second. Yeah. But they aren't game breaking. No. It's not like you're getting, you know, the the marksman feat or combat feats that people always get when you're trying to min-max a character. That's not the feats that they're giving. In Great weapon master, polar master, yeah, stuff yeah, like that. Stuff yeah. like that. Um, instead, you're getting these, which are still useful, and they still add flavor to a character as well as mechanical significance. But now that everyone gets them, I, I don't think they're game-breaking by any no. means. One other thing that they did with races is they've removed the half races, it looks like. Yeah. So half-elf and half-orc were in um, the original player's handbook, where half-elf, I mean, everybody's heard that story. Like, a human falls in love with an elf, and they end up making a half-elf. Uh, <laughs> what does Joe Cat say? The dirty little pointy-eared mongrels. <laughs> um, but I think the half-orc has always been problematic Yeah, as a race, because orcs are, especially at the time, uh, portrayed as savage. So, how did you make a half work? Like, they're like nine times out of ten. That is not a positive story. Um, yeah. So they've removed it, and what they've done is they kind of threw some rules in here for children of different humanoid kinds. Basically, what you can do is if you wanted to pick, you know, two different races for your father and mother, um, you can do that and just kind of pick the. Uh, the traits that come along with those um, those races and kind of balance it out. Yeah. So I think it makes um, I think it makes a better story. Yeah, it does. Like for 100 um, percent. I like that full orc is now it's just a it's just a playable race. Yeah, right. Like, they went back to that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we had so. What was it? Volos? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Had a couple monstrous races that you could play as, right? Um, I like that we're kind of, we're working away from that more or less. It's not to say that there aren't bad orcs out there, right? They still <laughs> exist. But now you can play as a character that is not necessarily one of those. Yes. Um, or if you want to do a game where you are all one of those. I, it's really, I mean, again, this is all the fun of D&D that you can, you can tailor a game however you want to. They introduced a new race that I had not seen before, the Ardling. Yep. And the Ardling seems to be somewhat of a celestial version of the Tiefling, which I thought was the Azmir before, but I can kind of see where I guess it's a little, like, it's a little different. Like, they don't, because Azmir kind of just fit into humanity, right? They, they blend. Yeah. The, um, the Ardling does not. <laughs> <laughs> Where with, with tieflings, there was always something, right? Like, they either had, like, red skin or horns or fangs or, you know, scales. There was always something that kind of showed that uh, demonic or devilish um, lineage that they had. Well, the Ardling has kind of the same thing, where the Ardling, they describe them as being humanoid, but having the head of some sort of an animal. Right. And there's a couple different versions, the Exalted, the Heavenly, and um, the Idyllic. Um, and they kind of give you like a different um, suggestion for each one of them in the thing. So if you're playing an exalted Ardling, um, they suggest a cat, an eagle, a goat, or a mule for your head. I don't know why those animals are more like they lean more toward the chaotic good 
um, heavenly, they're more lawful good, and they're like an elephant, an owl, a pig, or a stork. I don't know who's picking these out there, but that's just the suggestions that they make. Um, so that's a new race that gets a fly speed as well. As a bonus action, you can spout spectral wings and fly up to a number of feet equal to your speed. Um, if you're in the air at the end of this, you fall. There's nothing holding you aloft. So, I mean, pick your landing spot well. As a bonus action, you can use a number of times equal to your proficiency. That's one of the other things I've noticed is they're tying a lot back to proficiency. Yeah, that seems to be the the new kind of limit. Where it used to be uh, like a certain modifier Yeah, was a lot of times the limiter for whatever it is. Now it's proficiency, which I think does a couple of things. I think it prevents a min-max character from being as good. Yeah. Because now you don't force a sat as high as you can to get the uses out of things. Because it's still based on whatever overall level you are. Right. Which I think helps. But it also helps characters who are um, multi-classing. Because sometimes when you're multi-classing, you don't get the ability score increases like a regular person who stays in a specific class would. Right. Somebody just goes straight through. Yep. So... Now that some of these abilities are based on your proficiency, you'll still have access to those at the same intervals as other players do, which that means that opens up a lot of more character options for viability. Right. Which I think is fantastic, um, because if you want to do, you know, that crazy character that does the thing that most people would never think of doing, now you can and not be necessarily as punished for it. Uh, yeah, yeah. The Ardlings also get um, spells at first, third, and fifth level just for their class. Or, excuse me, for their race. Yeah, there are a couple other races that do that now, too. I know elves, um, they get them based on the type of elf you are, which we have the drow, the high elf, and the wood elf. I I do like how they've done because it feels like it matters now. Yeah. So, just for instance, I think the elf is probably the most well-known like division of the different races like so if you are a drow the first thing you get is your dark vision increases which everyone expects that but you get the dancing lights cantrip right right at third level you get fairy fire and at fifth level you get darkness so if any of you have ever read any of salvatore's novels like you see the dark elves or the drow using these abilities yes like all the time so that's cool. I'm glad we're staying true to the lore. So then you have high elves. Um, you automatically get prestidigitation. And when you finish a long rest, you can actually change that cantrip with a different cantrip. Right. Um, which I think is fantastic. That kind of goes with the high elves being the keepers of magic. Like they tend to be the ones more in tune with like arcane magic and things like that. So fantastic. Third level, they get detect magic. And fifth level, they get misty step, both of which are kind of like iconic arcane spells right um the wood elf though you flip that over to the more like nature dwelling natural elves um they get a slight increase to speed and they get the druid craft cantrip which is the nature version of prestidigitation right um so fantastic that all fits um they also get long strider at third level and at fifth level pass without a trace both are usually those are usually ranger specific spells. I was going to say both of those have getting played a lot yeah. with from the ranger side. Yeah, so I like how they kind of have that natural lean towards that class, which I mean it's a fantastic choice for a ranger, I think, because it just fits. Um but there's a couple of the races too that get the same kind of treatment 
I know uh, tieflings as well, depending on your uh, legacy, your fiendish legacy, you get different benefits and um, innate spells that you can cast as well. So I, I like the direction they're going with this because uh, right. it makes it feel it makes the different types of these races feel different. Yes. Gnomes get the same thing because yep. there's the forest gnomes and rock gnomes. So forest gnomes get minor illusion and speak with animals. Uh, blah, blah, blah. You can use that one a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus yet again. Uh, and then take a long rest. You can also use spell slots for it and where rock gnomes will get mending and prestidigitation where they can use prestidigitation. Take 10 minutes to cast it and they can create a tiny clockwork device. AC5, one hit point, such as a toy, a fire starter, or a music box. So that's kind of cool with a little bit more flavor, but it's something in the race that is, again, tied back into the race and in the lineage. Yeah, 100%. I, so far, I really like some of the minor tweaks they've done to the races. Um, I think it makes them feel unique. It makes them feel not only um, flavorful, but also have a mechanical tie-in for what they're doing. Um, we talked a little bit about backgrounds already. Um, that stuff is pretty straightforward. Um, not a whole lot of changes there with the exception of the additional first level feet. Um, so let's talk about some of those. Yes. So the current list of first level feats that's, that's given here in this initial, um, PDF of the UA stuff is, um, we have alert crafter healer, lucky magic initiate musician, savage attacker tavern brawler and tough uh so starting with alert uh it is very similar to the previous alert feat that was available in the original php uh basically it says when you roll initiative you can add your proficiency bonus to your roll um but the new change to it is immediately after you roll initiative you can swap your initiative with any one willing ally in the same combat where it used to be, um, alert was that you could not be surprised. Yeah. They've taken that away. Um, but I like this better. Yeah, I think this is fantastic, especially if you have either yourself or a person in the party who benefits from a like higher starting initiative. Yes. Like Gloomstalker Rangers, you want to be the first to attack because of the bonuses that you get. So the having the ability to manipulate that is great. Or... If you have a caster that is able to do some sort of crowd control or something like that at the start of a fight, fantastic. So right, let them I, get that off. Yep, I like this change. It it adds. Um, I've always felt like initiative was one of those things that like you just get stuck. Like I mean, it is what it is, and it's not like game breaking or like you know. Usually, you're still okay at the beginning of a you know the round whenever you get to go kind of thing. But I like being able to manipulate that. Yes. Like, yeah. 100%. Um, so the next one is Crafter, which this is actually a new feat. Um, this one is really cool. So you gain a tool proficiency with three different artisan tools of your choice. So the artisan tools are usually things like the Tinker Tools, the Brewer's Kit, uh, the Stonemason's Tools, things like that uh, to be able to, to craft things out of, of course. Um, so you gain proficiency with theory of those, which that's more flavorful. Uh, but then you get these couple of things. Uh, you get a discount. Whenever you buy a non-magical item, you receive a 20% discount on it, which I think is fantastic. 
And I picture that as being a little card that you would have to carry around on your person. Um, <laughs> but I'm in the Stonemasons Guild. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then also you get faster crafting. Uh, when you craft an item using a tool with what you have proficiency, you the crafting time is reduced by 20%. So it depends on how stringent you are on the crafting rules. Right. Uh, whether or not this really makes a huge difference for you. But I like that they're, again... It has flavor, but it also has mechanics behind it. Yeah, yeah. I do like how they redid Healer. Two things you get from it are Battle Medic. So if you have a Healer's Kit, you can expend one use of it and basically let whoever you're working on, you get to roll one of their hit die that they expend, and they get some healing. So you don't have to have potions and whatnot handy. Also, for healing rerolls, if you roll a dice to determine the number of hit points that you restore with a spell or with the Battle Medic benefit, you can re-roll the die if it rolls a one. Because, oh my god, how much does it suck when you... I'm going to take a potion. 2d4 plus 2. I got 4. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sucks. So I like that. And the other big one that I saw that I liked was the change in Lucky. Like, we talked about a lot of stuff going back mm-hmm. and being tied to the proficiency bonus. It is probably one of the most taken feats in the game ever. Yeah. And it used to be it allowed... You had three points between long rests, and you could either re-roll... A attack, a saving throw, or an ability check, or you can force an attacker to re-roll an attack on you. Yeah, basically imposing kind of a dis- disadvantage. Now it is uh, you have a number of luck points equal to your proficiency bonus, and you can spend them for advantage immediately after you roll a d20 for a d20 test for a d20 test, which is the new word for attacks, saving throws, or ability checks. You can spend one luck point to give yourself advantage or disadvantage when a creature rolls against you. Yeah. So I like that it's tied to proficiency. Yes. Because it makes it less strong at early levels, but it makes it stronger at higher levels. Right. It scales it better. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely. Uh, Magic Initiate pretty much stays the same Um, for the most part. You get the cantrips. You get two cantrips as well as a first level spell. Um, But Musician is a new feat. And I like this. Um, So we talked about this um, as we were discussing beforehand. It always felt like when in a character's background, it's like, oh, you get proficiency with one musical instrument. And everyone's like, cool, I'll take a name your favorite musical instrument. Usually something ridiculous. Yeah, like a kazoo. Bagpipes. Yeah. A hurdy-gurdy. Yeah, sure. And it was never really a mechanical feature. If you, you weren't a bard, it didn't matter. Right. And even, even if you were a bard, half the time it didn't matter anyway. Um, but with this new feat, this is what you get. So one, you gain tool proficiency with three musical instruments, right? That's cool. Pick your favorite three. Now you get something called inspiring song. As you finish a short rest or a long rest, you can play a song on a musical instrument with what you have proficiency and give inspiration to allies who hear the song. The number of allies you affect in this way equals your proficiency bonus. Uh, hello, if you're not a human, <laughs> now you can give people perf- or give people inspiration just for playing. They're really handing out that inspiration um, to, like we talked about. It was probably one of the more underused mechanics because a uh-huh. lot of DMs forget to give it out. Yeah. Right? Because it used to be something that it was a DM reward. And sometimes we get busy. Uh, there's a lot going on behind the screen. So I do kind of like that. Yeah, 100%. Um, I like that this is an option now. You could be a fighter who is a lover of music and now is able to give his team or her team inspiration 
every short and long rest. It's Gurney Halleck. It's fantastic. <laughs> like that's to me that seems crazy because it's it's every short and long rest. Yes. Like, yeah. And it's up to your number of proficiency. Which you start with two. Um, which again, as we talk about, it scales really well. Um, the last one I I know we want to talk about because it's fantastic is the Savage Attacker feat. Uh, Savage Attacker basically says you have trained to deal particularly damaging strikes. When you take the attack action and hit a target with a weapon as part of that action, you can roll the weapon's damage die twice and use either roll against the target. You can use this benefit only once per turn. So every turn, you can basically have advantage on your damage. This is really strong, too. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's not a plus 10 to your damage or anything like that, but just being able to have advantage on your damage die, especially those of you who like to use great axes out there. I know Every that, axe is a great axe. Watch your dirty mouth. <laughs> I know that D12 can be fickle. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just being able to have advantage on something like that, I think, is phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, uh, those are the main ones. Um, I do want to honorable mention tavern brawler (laughs) because this has been a thing for fifth edition for a while people trying to make because they had monk come out and people like i'm gonna make a better unarmed fighter with a fighter and i don't think it ever really works out well but this does really help out so a couple things you get out of you get the enhanced unarmed strike instead of just dealing one point plus your strength modifier you actually will deal bludgeoning damage a d4 plus your strength modifier which is how monks start their unarmed strikes Whenever you roll damage for your unarmed strike, you can re-roll dies if it rolls a one. Uh, when you hit a creature, with sho- you can hit them with an unarmed strike and you can shove them, uh, push it up to five feet away. You can use that once per turn. And then my favorite part of this feat is furniture as weapons. You can wield furniture as weapons using the rules for a great club for small or medium furniture and the rules for a club for tiny furniture. Now, that makes the DM have to determine how big the thing you grab is, which I think is fantastic. But I love, like you said, again, there's flavor to it, but there's also a mechanic here. It makes me want to, if if I had a tavern brawler in my game, for some reason every tavern they go into ever is just full of tiny furniture. <laughs> but it, it, that makes sense. If I grab a chair and hit somebody with it, that's gonna I'm going to be able to put a lot of weight behind that. Two-handed. I'm swinging it hard. If it's not available and I grab a candelabra, that should be more like a club. It's going to not do as much damage, but I'm still going to get to swing it. Right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. Like, I, I like that there is thought behind, like, behind this. Yeah. Um, I would much rather, like, I'd much rather, I like the mechanical way that they're incorporating these things. Yes. Like, it feels like, not only do we have things that are flavorful in this like first just initial run of this, but we also have mechanical tie-ins across the board. And that's one thing that I like to see because for me, having things that are just there arbitrarily, like that don't mean anything. I'm not really, not really a fan of. I think the other big change that came out of this was the B20 test which is an attack, a saving throw, or an ability check. And they talk about the difference between rolling a 1 and rolling a 20. Rolling a 1 on the d20 automatically fails regardless of any modifiers to the roll. Now that's kind of a reach back to AD&D and 3rd edition. 
Rolling a 20 on the d20 test automatically succeeds regardless of modifiers to that roll. A player character also gains inspiration when rolling a 20, thanks to a remarkable success. Rolling a 20 does not bypass limitations on the test, such as range, line of sight, something like that. The 20 bypasses only bonuses and penalties to the roll. I like this, the way that they're writing it. I was a little iffy at first, because I, I liked in 5th edition that a 20 wasn't automatically a success, right? Like, I'm going to go and tell the king that I want to be king and use a persuasion check. I rolled a 20. Yeah, but I think what we, as we were discussing kind of our thoughts on this beforehand, I think this brings up the very important fact that not everything gets a roll. Yes. Yeah, and that's where we kind of settled on this. Like, I'm not going to give you a roll on that because it's impossible. Even if you somehow convince the king that he should let you be king instead, everybody around him is going to be like, no, who is this jackass? Right? Like, I I think that's going to be on the DM to determine if a role can be made or not. If it is if it is possible at all. Yeah, so that's more ability checks. Yeah. If we think about attack roles, I think this fits better. Like, this feels better as a mechanic. Yes. Um, because before, even if you, like, technically there should be a scenario where a character could roll a 20 and still miss. In original 5e. Yes. Uh, because whatever their attack modifier is, say it's plus 5, plus 6, if the creature they're fighting, their AC is higher than that, they would technically still miss. Yes. I like this better. Yes. This feels better. But if you're in that situation, you probably don't want to be there anyway. Um, but this creates those moments where it's like, I'm going to try and shoot an arrow at the dragon that we're running away from, even though... Like, there's no reason that we should be able to hit this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I've had exactly that scenario in second edition playing AD&D. That I do like in the combat side because that is, you know, the divine inspiration. The should never have happened. That this is what makes your heroes heroes is because at some point there was a touch of destiny. Yeah. That changed it. So I do like it for that. Yeah, but like I said. 100%. Yeah. I, I think the problem does come with skill checks. Mm-hmm. Because there are players out there, and I'm sure if you've played enough, you've played with them, where they say, I want to do this, and then they roll the die. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up. <laughs> like, you, you can't just... It, it's going to force the DM to be more selective on what they actually call for rolls for. Yeah. And that may be one of those things where I know my games and I know in like the games that I play most of the time in the session zero is like, hey, you tell me what you want to do and I'm going to tell you what I need you to do to to determine if it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Because to me, I picture the. The dice kind of take a backseat to role playing as well to the story. Yeah. So as if a character or a player describes what they want to do and describes it in such a way that they're able to really portray that event Mm -hmm. whether it's talking to another you know npc or like describing the way in which they want to complete an action something like that a lot of times that will affect for me personally that'll affect any dc that i put on the roll or i mean if it's damn good enough like we'll give it to them you know right and and i think that kind of is going to be more the direction that the general like gaming of D and D is going to have to go less reliance on the die necessarily, but also at the same time, this allows for those like fantastical moments. Right. 
Right, and I really like that. Yeah, because if you think about it, a 20 is the highest possible thing a character could get, even if you're just looking straight numbers, regardless of this roll. If they roll a 20, that is the absolute best outcome that they could get from the dive. So why not be able to reward them like indefinitely with that? Uh, I do think one thing that um, the Star Wars RPG does really well is defining how the dice rolls affect the outcome of things. Yes. Because if you've never played the Star Wars RPG, they have, you'll have like a success with minor failure or like a failure with like minor success type um, in the dice roll. Right. Um, which basically means whatever they were trying to do, they succeeded, but there is negative consequences for it. Yes. Um, and I feel like with the dice system in the Star Wars RPG does really well at, at portraying that where it's kind of harder to do with a single D20. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like that's kind of the direction that we need to be going as we look at ability checks and things like that. If we're not already um, is, you know, it might take a 14 to accomplish this task, but if they roll an 18, then they're going to be, all right, cool. You did really good. And some, yeah. or if they roll like a 13, you didn't quite do the thing you wanted to do. But here's some good stuff that happened. Yeah. Or if they roll the two, it's like, all right, you failed and more bad stuff. <laughs> right. like, yeah. Not only did you not do it, the guard saw you not do it. Yeah. Now yeah. you're in trouble. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other things I want to hit real quick, just uh, critical hits only happen with weapons or unarmed strikes. It only happens with a player character. They specifically say critical hits. If a player character rolls a 20 on an attack roll, not creatures, not NPCs. So there's that. Um, and inspiration, like we talked about, there's a lot of inspiration handed out, which gives you advantage on a D20 test. There's a couple different ways to get it. Um, you can only have one at a time. Still, if you have inspiration, when you start a long rest, you lose that inspiration. Yeah, you can pat if you have inspiration and you get inspiration again. Yeah, you can give it to a player like another character in your group who doesn't have it. So I, I do like that kind of adjustment there. So with all the inspiration that's coming and giving out, like, that's fantastic. Like, let's make sure we're able to pass that around the table. Everybody gets a little bit of the pie. Yeah, I I like a lot of the changes that they're making. Um, I, I hope they clarify or at least make mention to the critical hit just to clarify and actually come out and say, Critical hits now can only be done by the player characters, not against the player characters, as well as they only affect weapon and unarmed strikes. Yes, because that's what it looks like. Yeah, it doesn't say spells in there right now. Yeah, and we know Jeremy Crawford is a guy who stands behind the words matter type thing. Yeah. So 100%, I think it's a fair reading right now that 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 is rules as written according to this. Yes. All right, so there you go. Hey, our quick, uh, I say quick, that took us like an hour and 10 minutes, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Rundown. Um, I hope you guys followed along. I hope it was something to get you interested in looking at it and pulling the playtest material yourself and give it a run at one of your tables. And again, in Jeremy, we trust. Hey, and with that, the BBEG begins his monologue. This isn't about power. It's about control and protection. And we're going to call it right there. For the Dapper Meeple, I'm Josh. And I'm Jim. Good night, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around and listening to our show. Hey, if you enjoyed what we're doing here, follow us and leave a like. It really helps us out. 
And if you have anything to say back to us, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook at the Dapper Meeple or at dappermeeplegaming at gmail.com. And as always, we'll save you a seat at the table. <laughs>